This is Hope FM. Robin Wood is my guest. And where do we start? Well, at the very beginning is a very good place to start. Don't you think so, Robin? I think that's the best place to start, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> now, obviously, you were born. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> but, but in terms of your family life, what, what was life like for you? You know, have you got many memories of those early days? Well, I was born during the war, 1943, to be precise. Uh, my father was serving in the forces. I didn't know him. I, I don't think I met him till I was nearly four years old. And I think that obviously had a big effect because relationship was not particularly good because of he didn't know me and I didn't know him in that sense. I was largely brought up with my grand- grandparents, just my mother, she lived in their home, and that's, that's how I was brought up. And, of course, that was, that was part of the era, wasn't it? That oh, I'm not the only one. I've talked to many who came through that period, and it, it was hard, hard for the children. And it must be terrible for the, for the fathers who had spent so much time in those horrible situations. I know my father, he served um, in, in many countries, and he was quite distinguished. He, had, he was mentioned in dispatches. I don't know what he ever did, but probably some pretty awful things he had to go through. Have you still got the medals? We've got the medals, yes. They're up on my son. My son's got them now up on his wall, yes, and got the citation from the from the government as well. Yeah, so the, the country's gain, sadly, was was your loss, and, and I guess your mum's loss uh, as well for quite a long time. Oh, it must are- have been awful, awful for her, yeah. I mean, saying they were married. I came along pretty quickly, I guess. And she didn't see him again for years. And uh, he was in Europe. I know he was in Belgium because I I think he once mentioned to me something about the Battle of the Bulge. And I think that's probably where he was involved in some action. So had he been an author like yourself, that would have been an interesting read, wouldn't it? But it's not just him. So many from that era, just to hear their stories. But they never talked about it. It was too painful for some of them, wasn't it? Absolutely too painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... He served in Europe, and of course, after VE Day, troops were then uh, 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 dispersed to different places, and he was sent to Palestine because of the uprising out there in Palestine. And he was there again in more conflict. And I do remember this, being told that he was there at that very moment when the King David Hotel in Jerusalem was blown up. Which is opposite the YMCA, actually. Is that so? Yeah, yeah, the King David Hotel is opposite the American YMCA in central Jerusalem. Is that so? I remember him saying that, and again, I think that was a big impact upon his life, yeah. Hmm. So obviously your grandparents were were very largely involved in in bringing you up, and your mum, of course. Yes, my mother. So what what can you remember of those days? Was was faith part of your... of the family? Not particularly. I, I I don't know really how my grandparents stood. They were Anglicans. I think it was a fairly nominal Anglican faith for them. My mother, she was a Christian, yeah. And they uh, they were married in, in an Anglican church, my, my father and mother, um, and very keen, active Christians, I understand. But something happened when my father was out there in Palestine. He got involved with a group out there and uh, they were quite a narrow brethren type group. And when he came back home, everything changed apparently. I know everything would have changed everywhere coming back to this, uh, to to a life which he hadn't known. But he came back and he put aside his Anglican roots and everything else and the whole family, that, which was just myself, my mother, we had to go along with this rather, shall I say, rather tight-minded brethren group. 
which of course would have been would have been difficult, for, you know, probably more for your mom than for you because your understanding at that point very limited, sensing something. Yeah. But then you were you were prayed for. It's interesting reading in in your in your little biography that you wrote me that you were prayed by a missionary. Were you seven years old? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was about seven years old. Uh, there was a missionary who came to stay with us. Often we have folk like that come to stay, usually out of the same same groupings and uh, I remember him one day he said to me well kneel down by your bed and he said this prayer say this prayer he says now you're a Christian well be honest with you I hadn't a clue what had happened I'll be absolutely honest about that he told my father of course they were all pleased he's saved he's saved they were saying all but quite frankly could be saying nursery rhymes Mm. And there's a solitary lesson, isn't it? Because yeah. I guess that that in in our enthusiasm, and mm-hmm. particularly evangelical enthusiasm, sure, can yeah. I say that you know it's it's like you know when you just say these words That's right. and abracadabra, yeah. there you are. Um, but of course, your young your young life. I mean, yeah. although I suppose on the positive side, and I guess as you look back, even in those early mm-hmm. days, that God would have been shaping you uh, for the future that only He could see. You know, but obviously for you, it would have been like double touches well it, it was um and i think what it says to me I, I, i'd be very careful how you handle children uh, very difficult i think bringing them to points of decision we've got to be very careful about that and probably it's not done in those manner mm. in that way nowadays yeah what's most important with children i think is teaching them the bible teaching them the mm. word of god and and i think that, that the one benefit from the, from the background i have where that brethren group they believed in the Bible. They taught the Bible, and I was rooted in the Bible. They were very legalistic in many other respects, but they were rooted in the Bible. And I think that was where my faith developed from that. And isn't it interesting that that even, you know, though you may not be comfortable with the way the Bible is taught and even some of the theological rules and practices that go along, it's amazing how much of it goes in. And it stays in, doesn't it? Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, it's, things just come back to you and think where did that come from yeah. well i don't know where we taught that years I, ago i don't know where you're the same as me but I, I can ream off scriptures but ask me where they are <laughs> yeah. uh, i can be better a bit better at it these days but 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 i know that they're there yeah. and, and they they pop out you know at the you know like uh, bring up a child in the way he should That's go right. and when he's old it all comes out yes yeah. and isn't it amazing they usually come back in the authorized version <laughs> that's for me anyway because that's how we were brought up <laughs> well wasn't king didn't king james write the bible <laughs> <laughs> no he didn't oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. but so when was your when was your first memories of then faith or your interest in spiritual things, uh, you know, when, when did that begin to take some sort of shape? Well, I describe it like this. My journey was one of discovery and development, um, you know. And I think largely it was this one went to the Bible and read for oneself. And, and, and of course, one heard a lot of good Bible teaching, preaching in different places. I can't say a point where that, that was a big, massive a Damascus experience. You didn't I, have flashing lights. I the, never appear, had anything. The appearance of the Archangel Gabriel. No, no, no. But I do know this: that over the over the years, a faith began to develop. Very weak, very often, but it was there, and it was all about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's I what mean, it was in the end of the day. It's interesting because one of the things that you wrote was a lot of your 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 experience was accompanied by 
periods of doubt, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. But of course, that's true of so many of us, isn't it? That uh, that they along. I mean, you can have strong faith, Absolutely. but still not have all the answers, and still have issues where there where those doubts come. And I guess that our advice, and no doubt your advice, Robin, would be that if anybody's listening and they're in that sort of place, it's not a bad place to be. It's just you're pressing on, you know, and we're learning that we never stop learning, no. you know, throughout of our, our our life. In terms of your career, yes. I mean, did you have any sense of you know of what you would have liked to do, um, you know, as you, as you were growing up? I think I always had a sense that there was some sort of missionary calling within me. Um, it was so often talked about in the uh, in the situation where where we were. Missionary work was. That was almost like the pinnacle, if so, you like, in those days. Missionaries visiting in the home, it was a sort yeah, of the it was, done it was thing. All, all about it. And I always felt that that was probably where, where it would end up. And I remember, you know, when I first met my wife, and we'll probably talk about that later, but uh, when we first I first said to her, look, don't be surprised if we end up on the mission field. So I think God's got that in hand for us. And it could have been anywhere, I suppose. Well, it could have been anywhere. <laughs> I never knew where it would end up, but it, well, that's another story. You're listening to Community Now on Hope FM with Keith Jones Bookshop, serving the community for over 50 years. Visit keithjones.co.uk. And uh, Robin Wood is my very, very special guest today. We've been talking so much about his, his early life and quite a lot of ground that we have to cover. So in terms of your your, your, your early education and, and so on, um, how did that go? Was that I, I know that amongst other things you became a chorister. Uh, was music a very important part of your life? I think it was one, one aspect of life, yeah. I... Um I, in those days, it was the 11 plus, and I passed the 11 plus examination. I went to the Oxford High School, which was quite a prestigious school, uh, very notable for Lawrence of Arabia, was one of its old boys, and Ronnie Barker, interesting. Two great people. And yeah. a lot of, lot of others as well. I'm afraid they lived a lot on the, on the history, but that's another point. But a very strong link with Jesus College in Oxford. Lawrence of Arabia went there as well. And um, as part of one's education, one, uh, one, one was chosen, I think, uh, to go and sing in the college choir at Jesus College, which I did for a few years. So did you progress to university? I never went to university, but I went after school. I went into the banking business, in the cooperative bank, actually, and I then studied in what was then the Oxford Polytechnic, but he's now Oxford Brooks University. So in one sense I did and I didn't, but that's how it was in those days. Very few people in actual fact had the privilege of going directly to university. Well, those were the days, though, whenever bank managers were bank managers, you know, you could actually have an appointment and see somebody. Oh, yes, and they would be sitting in their pinstripe suit behind the desk there, peering down over their half-moon glasses and, at you, yes. And you had to make a case of why you should give you 100,000 Absolutely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How things have changed. <laughs> yes, it's all machines now. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, I mean, that whole world of finance, was it something that appealed to you? I think it was something I just landed into. Mm-hmm. I That's mean, a lot of people do. It was, I mean, in those days, there was never a problem. There was not any great unemployment. One could 
find a find a find a job and this was the one that came up and it appealed to me and i did reasonably well in in, in that job of course people would say about you know get yourself a good secure job you know and people would go into the banking and the civil sure. service and yeah. there were a number of professions that people would go for yeah. se- security you know and it was a very secure position in those days mm-hmm. now obviously i think you were 20 uh, when you decided to go to theological college. That's right, yes. I, I guess this was obviously burning away within me about there's something more. And the faith was, to, as I say, developing there. And I was sensing that God has something more. And I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn more about the Bible. I wanted to learn more about uh, serving God in some way or other. And so I applied and went to Moreland's Bible College, which was not at Sopley. It was then in Dawlish in Devon. And I spent two years at Moreland's Bible College. They were, they were good years there. Not sure really why I went there in one sense, but I did learn quite a lot whilst I was there. So there were, again, there was no great calling. No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> secretly, I think probably it was a good excuse to get away from home. <laughs> <laughs> Although, isn't it? I mean, as you look back, though, now on yeah. the on those years, I mean, you've been honest enough to say that there wasn't any great calling. No, and not it, then. And I suppose you were you were searching. So having this deep sense of there something yeah. more, and, the, yeah. and there's definitely something I've been called here, but not being able to join the dots up uh, as no, it were. No, that's right. But that's so common, isn't it? Because so many of us don't have a clue no. <laughs> what we should be doing. And whatever. So tell us a wee bit more about, about those two years. That, um, I guess, did you meet people from lots of different Christian traditions? Oh, yes. It was, it was, it was quite brethren-based in those days, the old Moorlands College. But, yeah, folk did come from different denominations. And I met some great folk there. And I'm still friends with some of the, my uh, f- fellow students today. You know, folk who have gone on to serve God all over the world in different situations. No, they, they were they, they were good times, but as I came out of it, and uh, I didn't know really what was next. And to be quite honest with you, God, I'm not throwing this one into into service like this. I mean, I was naive, I was inexperienced. Well, you were I, young. I, I mean, I, you, you know, you're in your early twenties. It was no place for me to go into any Christian missionary work or anything else at that time. So what I did, I went back into the finance world. So going back then into the finance world, having had that mm-hmm. two years experience and a wee bit more knowledge behind you, was it different going going back into what you knew in terms of the world of finance? Uh, I went into a different sphere of activity, actually. So I went into, uh, into with finance companies where we were involved in industrial finance and leasing, big money business it was then. I guess it was different, but all the while I kept thinking, there's something more. God's got something more for me. I was serving God in different ways. I was preaching in different churches. I was very active in the local church. And, of course, by this time, I'd got married as well. Well, I was going to say that one of the big things that no doubt changed your life a lot was, was a wee bit of romance. So, so Cupid's arrow struck. So how did you, how did you meet yes, your wife? Yes, that was incredible, really, because I'd gone back to Oxford after coming out of, uh, out of, out of Bible college there. And when I arrived back at the church... All of a sudden, there was this incredible young lady came to that church. She was a midwife, come to work at the John Radcliffe Hospital. She was one of the original core of the midwives. She could tell you some stories about that. Too. Whether whether it's true or not, because that, that programme on a Sunday... She, she, oh, 
Well, she criticised it as well. She watched it. They're not doing it quite right there. but Because uh, she knew. She yeah. knows. And some of her colleagues at that time in London, because she was there in the East End of London, they've been asked to contribute to the script since. Anyway, this incredible young lady... Surely. So, am I I'm, talking about a future guest? And I should have. I don't in, know, but I'm not, the sure, that she, I'm not sure that she'd be happy behind one of these <laughs> microphones. Shirley, if you're listening, don't worry about it. We're not going to pressurise no. you. <laughs> Give us some baby talk or something like that. That's another story, but not behind a microphone. <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, was was she uh, strong in her faith as well? Or? Oh, very strong, because she'd spent a, uh, a time at Bible college as well, a different Bible college. So, you know, we were on the same, on the same wavelength. And I do remember as we met and we prayed together, we said, look, we're not be, don't be surprised if God takes us beyond this into some sort of Christian work. So, again, you you had that stirring, and, 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 and she had it as well. Oh, yes. That, that sense of... And we've always done things together. We felt, you know... If God calls me, He calls her. We do it. We're, we're a unit together. So, are you? What are you like in terms of personality? Because it always amazes me how, uh, uh, like for example, with my wife, we're, we're like chalk and cheese. You know the things. Like for example, I'm gregarious. I'm out there. I'm mm. doing it. Jan's uh, is, is is very well organised. Um, but put her in front of a microphone, and she'd die. Although I have actually had her in front of a yeah. microphone, but I've had to drag her screaming. But th- did the complementary nature of your of your different characters? I think there are many ways in which we've complemented each other. Yeah. Mm. Difficult to say. This is Hope FM. You're listening to Community Now on Hope FM with Keith Jones Bookshop, serving the community for over 50 years. Visit keithjones.co.uk. And my very special guest who's been waiting patiently whilst we were done at Keith Jones' Robin Wood. Now, uh, we, we left you. You just met your lovely wife, uh, Shirley. Uh, both of you with a sense that one day, uh, you know, probably you'd be serving on, on the mission field. But then, of course, life was to take you not quite to, to the mission field, but back to something uh, that maybe you hadn't really planned for. But you, you tell the story. Yes, after I left uh, Morland's Bible College, I went back into the finance business and my wife and myself, uh, we moved to Bristol. Um, I was offered a position there and strangely, I seemed to do quite well in that business. I kept thinking, surely God, this is time for me to get out. And I got promoted time and time again. I ended up as one of the directors of the company and we were very, very comfortable then. We were had a lot of things that were... Materially, you were nice. Materially, nice big car and all the rest of it, that sort of thing. And it was there at that point. And I would say this: I was still serving. We were serving the Lord in different ways in the local church. But at that point, when we got almost that, I would say, very comfortable position, and we could have got too comfortable, perhaps. God stepped in, and He stepped in in quite a strange way, an unexpected way. A very unexpected way. The pastor of the church where we went, he uh, he asked me to look at an article in a magazine. It's an old magazine called Crusade. Some of you may remember the Crusade magazine. I remember it, yeah. Yeah, and in the back of that was an advertisement, and it was for the position of General Secretary at Moreland's Bible College in Sopley. And I read that through, and my heart sank. I tell you what I did... I hid the magazine under the settee. <laughs> so why did your heart sink? Because I didn't want my wife to see it. <laughs> but she did. Oh. 
She, she, and she, she was checking well. onto the city, and there she come across the magazine. That's right. And we knew at once that God was saying something quite specific to us. And although the magazine was out of date, and I understand now from what I found out, is I was the very last person to apply for that position. I put in an application, and uh, well, it went on a quite a long while anyway. The application process. Now that's quite unusual in the world of appointments, isn't it? That, I mean, because normally you know these things are done and dusted within a, within a set period of time. But actually, the, it was quite a protracted time. Oh, it's very protracted. It was, yeah. And I, we did something which we many thought was, was very foolish. We were so convinced that this was what God wanted for us that. I resigned my position as director of this company. Um, a lot of people were looking at us thinking, you were, what, what are you doing? And did you do that with Shirley's agreement? We, well, here's, here's again, it's something strange how God speaks to you. I was driving home one day, and I can actually remember the, the, the place in the road where it's almost like a, one of those few times when you almost hear a, 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 a an voice. audible voice from God. It's time for you to resign. And I got home. And I said to Shirley, I've got something to tell you. She said, yes, I know what it is. You've got to resign from that job. And a lot of people were watching us then because we felt it was a bit like Abraham stepping out in faith with God, not knowing exactly where he's going to lead him. And uh, many of our non-Christian friends were saying, is this real? No, they're nuts. And that's what a lot of people were thinking. Mm. And we were, oh, yeah, we were on edge. But there again, it's a salient lesson, isn't it? Because although it's good to listen to the counsel of other people, when it comes to sort of guidance, I mean, the good advice can be good wrong advice, can't it? Yeah, but I wouldn't advise anyone to do this, anyone else to do this. But we were so convinced that this was right. And you've got to have that inner conviction to do something like that. And also you were both... It was interesting that God had obviously spoken to Shirley as well. Quite quite separately. And we've often found that's been the way it's been in our marriage, that God's spoken to us both to confirm some of the direction that we've gone in. So anyway, you're not hearing anything. You've been obedient. You've given mm. up your job. You've stepped up yeah. on faith, all the rest of it. But then as, as time passed and you didn't hear anything... Did you think, oh, my goodness? Absolutely. And, and what happened, actually, I'd given up a notice, this company, a very, a very good position I'd, I'd given up. I was actually approached by another company and said, would I go to join them? Mm-hmm. Temptation. Not only that, there was, was a better salary and a lot of other perks with this job. And I remember this, oh, dear, maybe this is what I should be doing now. Maybe this is a <laughs> this is something to fill in at the moment, but... I had to make a decision because they said, well, we've got to have an answer. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't take that position with you. And I realised at that moment I was burning my boats and I was just totally left with God. Did you, even though that was a pretty scary thing for, was, yeah. for you, for, well, for both of you to do. Absolutely, yeah. You, um, did you have a real peace? You know, what, what, what was really going on inside you? It doesn't sound like turmoil. It wasn't turmoil because we had that sense all the way along and there were so many scriptures we had to confirm this that it was a process that God was leading us leading us then and leading us into something else for the future. And we'd always had this conviction that there was something else that God was going to lead us into. Didn't quite know where it would be, but this seemed to be it. Now, eventually you got that interview, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. 
And I was offered the position as General Secretary at Moreland's Bible College. And a lot of people say, what was General Secretary? Well, I would say the emphasis on the word general, because <laughs> there was a bit of everything. <laughs> I think they use the term bursar now, you know. Well, yeah, some say you're the bursar. Yes, I was the bursar, but it was a lot more than that. It was a much bigger role than that. You see, Moreland's was relatively small in those days, but about 60, 70 students then. Uh, staff was fairly small. I worked directly with Derek Copley, the principal. We worked together for nearly 14 years, very close, had a very good relationship. We basically ran the college together. Uh, Brian Butler was the vice principal. Doug Barnett was there. These were folk who were there on the staff at that time. We didn't have a big staff. Uh, most of the lecturers were part-time ministers who would come in to give lectures during those days. Now, obviously, you, you had you had financial experience. Absolutely, you had administration ex- experience. Absolutely. You had a bit of business acumen and whatever. And I guess that I mean, right at the beginning of today, we talked about how God prepares you for sure. the future that only He can see. It was pretty evident that the, the gifting that you had was being used in this case in, in ministry that, that actually was pretty much developing quite fast. Yeah. So those skills were 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 very needful. I remember my pastor in Bristol, he said to me, he said, God never wastes anything. And, you know, some of the minute things that I've been involved in, strange things would seem to be in the business world, they came into play. I needed some of those skills when I was basically running Morelands in those days. Of course, Morelands is still functioning. Now, Absolutely. Now, De- very developed and a very different place to what it was. It in must those be a days. great encouragement to you. Have you been back to meet the, the, the new team, the new principal? Oh, I've some? met some of them. Met, met some of them. Most of the folk I, work, I worked with there, they've moved on now or retired. Oh. <laughs> Quite a long time ago it was. Yeah. This was back in 1979. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, that was sort of part of the history and part of the building blocks because sure. Morelands wouldn't be what it is today were it not, of course, for Derek and people like yourself who. Sure. would have contributed to that uh, growing yeah. ministry. We have very little there. I mean, um, financially, we were, we were up against it most of the time. Um, the buildings were very limited, and one of, the, one of my briefs was to develop the campus. And whilst I was there, we saw the, um, uh, some of the student accommodation built there. We saw, uh, we saw a, place, uh, a play school for children. I'm not sure if that's used now. Uh, we saw staff housing built there and the education centre, which is the big place in the middle. I mean, we saw that built. And it's interesting, isn't it, because the, the, the whole purpose of Morelands was, was to sort of ship people for the for the ministry sure. that they would go to yeah. so, I, so again and again that's quite funny isn't it because there you were pretty much all of your life not quite sure where you should yeah, be right, yeah. uh, working for a college where you're actually helping people to to develop. find their way through that forest and to develop and the yeah, skills and yeah. so on let me tell you something about our time at Moorlands there this probably is the most impressive thing of all is the way we proved God in his faithfulness you see, we didn't have much money there, Morelands. In fact, it was sort of hand-to-mouth most of the time there. But we had these massive building projects. And looking back, it was probably about two or three million pounds worth of building we saw when we were there. And how did we get the money? People used to say, oh, you must be a great fundraiser. No, I'm not a fundraiser. <laughs> we just prayed about it. We put it before God, and God supplied the funds. Quite amazingly. I remember very distinctly there was one point when we needed £40,000 to finish off, I think it was the accommodation block. 
what we did, we called the whole body of the college together, students, staff, together, and we had a prayer time together. The whole afternoon we spent in prayer for £40,000. The next day, I went to my post. There was a cheque in there for £2,000. Derek was by me. He was opening his post. There was one there for, I think, £35,000. <laughs> during, the, the, during that day, someone came into my office and he gave me the rest of that money, £40,000. Do you know what that did for students? That really boosted their faith. Here's a God who listens. Here's a God who works. Mm. And that probably was one of the great things is the faith enterprise whilst we were there at Moreland's. And, and isn't that the most encouraging message for us right now? Because it's the same God. And and even though the the challenges, and particularly as we come out of this period of, uh, of COVID, uh, you know, legion of challenges and mental health issues and so on impacting people. And yet, of course, the same God who provided then is the God who provides now. Isn't that so? God doesn't change. And we've proved that through our lives personally. This is Hope FM. Well, we left uh, Robin at Moreland's uh, where he was uh, General Secretary and you heard about that wonderful faith-building stuff of God's provision for the the building programmes that Moreland's had uh, uh, at that time. Uh, So you're beginning to hear God's voice, you and Shirley. Uh, You're beginning to build confidence and be encouraged by God's provision. But, of course, God didn't let you just continue at Moreland's. There was yet another call to quite a different place. Yes, indeed. Um, We had a wonderful time at Moreland's. I was there nearly nearly 13 years, I think, I was there on the staff. We we thoroughly enjoyed it for most of the time. There were problems, of course. But, yeah, it was a great time there at Moreland's. One or two things happened whilst we were there. Um, I had a great friend, colleague called John Davis, you may have known him. He was the missions director at Moreland's, and we became great friends. He had been a missionary in Thailand for 25 years, and one day he heard... He, I was doing a, a, a series of lectures, strangely, on the subject of revival, which we mentioned earlier on, and, and he said, we're going back to Thailand this next summer. Why don't you come with me and give some of those lectures out there to the Bible College, the Bible College that he founded out there in Thailand? So that developed, and we actually, he and his wife Muriel and Shirley and myself, we travelled not just to Thailand, we travelled all over Asia. We were ministering in different countries, preaching here and there and meeting people, and also we recruited a few folk from Orleans as well in the process as we went, went, went around. It gave us a great love for Thailand, and we began to think maybe God's saying something to us about Thailand in the future. And we were praying along these lines. Lord, if you want us to stay here at Moorlands, we're quite happy to stay here for the rest of our lives, if that's what you want for us. But we're open to anything else you may have for us. One day I was walking in the corridor of Moorlands. I could tell you again the very spot where it happened. One of the students in my tutor group, I had a tutor group there at Moorlands, he said to me, Robin, he said, there's a job for you in Thailand. Now, I think he said it tongue-in-cheek. 
but he didn't know we were praying about this. And did he? Had he did he know that you'd been to Thailand? But he knew we had an interest in Thailand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He knew we had an interest in Thailand. Well, to cut a, sh- a long story short, it put us in touch with an organisation called Christian Outreach, based in Limington Spa. They're now known as CORD, Christian Outreach Relief and Development. A wonderful Christian relief organisation. Absolutely phenomenal people who so care for people across the world. So we decided, we arranged with them to go up to meet them for a day. And I said to Shirley, I know what we're doing. We haven't been to Leamington Spa before. We'll go up there, meet them in the morning, um, have a little chat with them. Then we go out for lunch, have a nice day out and see around that countryside. We were there all day at Leamington Spa with the director of Christian Outreach, a man called Martin Lee, a remarkable man who went on to be director of Global, Global Outreach, I believe, after that. And... At the end of the day, he dropped a bombshell on us. He said, Robin, I want you to consider being our next director out in the Far East in Thailand. Oh, bang. I remember that journey back from Leamington Spa to Christchurch. We didn't speak. We got as far as Avon Causeway. And Shirley turned to me and said... What are we going to do about the cat? <laughs> so no question of the fact that you were going to Thailand. No, but in actual fact, it was more than that because we did have a fight with God then. I mean a fight with God, and it took quite a while where we just really, is this right? You know, We had to look at, we had two children. I mean, our son how, and how daughter. Old, how old were they? Uh, I'm trying to think how old they were then. Our daughter, she was, at, she was at University of Bath, finishing off teacher training there. Our son... He was about to go to art college. He's an artist. Um, at that stage, was it time to leave him? What about the house? There were so many things we had to think about mm-hmm. there. And Shirley said, what about the cat? <laughs> Very important well, to the her. the cat's the cat. Oh, the cat's the cat. Very important is the cat in our household. Um, but we, we did. We, we prayed about it. We took counsel. And we couldn't really get a, a, a clear picture on this and... We thought, we've got to talk to someone who's quite independent of our situation. We'd taken counsel from a lot of people who knew us. And we heard of the former Bishop of Singapore, a man called Reverend Bannett Chu. He was then retired, living yes. up in Verwood. We rang him up and said, can we come and talk to you? And we spent an evening with him. We didn't say an awful lot. And he read to us Psalm 91. And somehow or other, it all came together. And we just said yes. We're going to Thailand. And so we went to Thailand in 1992. And you were, what was the job? I was director for Christian outreach in Thailand in particular. And of course, we overflowed into other countries, Asia as well. Uh, the main job that we were looking at when we went out there was looking after the work in the refugee camps on the border between Thailand and Cambodia. That was a, an incredible work there. Uh, you may, if listeners will probably remember the history there of the terrible troubles with the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia from 1974 to 1979, how they just wrecked the country and about a quarter of the population were just eliminated. Hundreds, thousands came across the border into Thailand, into refugee camps that were set up there. 
1979, the Vietnamese moved into Cambodia. And although it's appeared that the the Khmer Rouge were defeated, they went into a guerrilla warfare that went on, actually, for nearly 15 years beyond there. A lot of people didn't realise that. It was still going on there. And uh, uh, as a result of that, even more people flocked, flooded over the borders into Thailand. So you had these huge refugee camps uh, on the border. And they eventually came under the umbrella of UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And there were various NGO groups, uh, voluntary groups, who were working there in those camps. And we, as Christian Outreach, worked in two of the big sites. And when I say sites, Site 2, as it was called, there were 200,000 on that site. And... It was quite an experience there. And, um, yeah, our responsibility was we had... Well, my responsibility there, I was had a, a team of 20 expat volunteers who were professional people in their own right and about 50 Thai staff. And we uh, looked after all the midwifery, which my wife was very interested, on the camps there, we looked after some of the health care. We looked after the engineering, the dentistry. So Shirley's midwifery background would have been... Yes, it was in one sense, although she wasn't able to practice there as such because of uh, you know, there, were, there were certain regulations there. She was certainly able to advise mm-hmm. in many ways in that situation. We loved that work there on the camps. Uh, not because we loved the situation they were in, but it gave us a great deal of satisfaction working there on those camps. And I, I suppose that one of the one of the primary things about Jesus' missionary uh, or his, his his outreach was his compassion, wasn't it? Like, so I, I guess that looking at the immense need that there must have been on those refugee oh, abs- camps. absolutely incredible indeed. And there, there's something else that was very rarely comes to public attention. God did something quite remarkable there. There was a move of God on those camps, particularly in the early days. And many of these people who had lost absolutely everything, most of them had lost people in, 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 the, in, in the destruction in Cambodia. They came, their, their Buddhist faith was left to one side, they didn't know where they were. Many of them came to faith in Christ, and there was quite a Christian community on those camps. So much so that when UNHCR took over, they were quite strict about this and said, No, 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 you've got stopped proselytizing on the We weren't proselytizing on the camp. God was doing his own work there, and it was spreading amongst the, the refugees. Many of them became Christians there. Of course, we're going to talk about your book on revival a wee, a wee bit later on, but it is remarkable, isn't it, that, that even in the darkest place, I mean, Corrie ten Boom used to yeah. say there is no pit so deep that That's his right. love is not yeah. deeper still. And I guess that you were you were saying that on, on those It's times. very often in those dark times that we see that God's moving. I don't know... I don't know the way he works. None of us know the way he works or how he's going to work in the future, but it's very often when things seem to be as bleak as they are, and God steps in, and that was certainly very bleak. In terms of support for that work, because I mean, obviously, to employ the staff that you had and to keep yeah, the wheels yeah. of the mission turning, yeah. it would have needed quite a bit of, of finance and so on. Yeah, yeah. How, how did you, how did that come? Um, Christian Outreach were a wonderful organisation. We didn't get a salary out there. We lived by faith whilst we were out there. But they looked after us superbly. They did. They were very, very good to us, and they 
raised a lot of funding through different agencies like Tear Fund and other uh, supporting bodies who would give towards that type of work. But also, it was largely a question of God's people. Churches supported that work o- over the years. Uh, um, <laughs> they, were, they, they, were, they were very good to us. Let me tell you this story. They were uh, when we went for, for our inter- when we went there to agree to go there. They said to us, "This um, we will look after you whilst you're there." And they kept their word. If you get sick, get injured. We will look after you, get you medical attention. If necessary, we will repatriate you. If you get killed or you die there, we're not going to bring your body back home. And if you get kidnapped, we will negotiate for you, but we will not pay a ransom. We didn't realise what that was all about at the time. But in actual fact, we were going into a war zone. Mm. Shells were still coming over the border at the time we were there. And one of my girls was kidnapped by the KR. And amazingly, and it was a miracle, because she was the only one, and I think it was just prayer, she was released from their clutches. So really, you're going into the lion's mouth, aren't you? You're going into... You're going into a place, but of course the difference was, and I guess that you and Shirley knew that through, although the threats were very real and the need was enormous, that actually you knew that you were in the place where God wanted you to be. That was the most important thing. We knew we were where God wanted us to be. Um, we were very happy to be in that situation, even though we left our family and everything else behind. We knew we were in the right place at that time. This is Hope FM. So, David, we talked about you being on the refugee camps, but of course that work was to develop into other areas as well and very needful areas. Sure. Yeah, um, the refugee work, in point of fact, it, it came to a conclusion because under an agreement with the UNHCR, uh, the refugees were repatriated back to Cambodia in 1993. In fact, we were very much involved in that. There was a big ceremony with the Prime Minister of Thailand, Mrs. Ugarta, General Secretary of UNHCR, and all the directors of different NGOs. We had to be there to see the refugees off. And we actually went back with them, flew back, flew over to Cambodia and saw them as they began to settle into a a life which was very strange for them. Some of them have never been in their home country because they were born out of, out of their own country. Others were older people and they just couldn't believe it. They were kissing the ground as they got back into, into Cambodia. But, that was, but there were other works we were involved in in Thailand. One of the problems there was in, in Thai society is that disabled children with any disability were tend to be looked down upon. Because it's seen as a weakness, isn't it? Well, it's all to do with the karma. I mean, we don't go into, I won't go into a lot of that now, but there's something wrong there. They're bringing something in that's bad into the family and um, they must have done something wrong in a previous life. That was the sort of thinking there. And children that had any sort of form of disability were, were, were put into a, a vast government home, huge place, and there were hundreds of children there. And we were... My predecessor, I won't take any credit for this, my predecessor there, he'd worked in this place and began to put some influence in there. We put carers in to help these children. Often there were 50, 60 children 
totally helpless in a ward there, some of them bound to the beds there, and they may have a, a two Thai carers who are totally uh, unskilled trying to look after them. We try to put help into these with our volunteers and those that we trained up from the Thai community. Um, and we also saw that there was possibility that some of these children, they got a future. They shouldn't be in a place like that. And we negotiated with the government to extract some of these children who we saw had potential for the future to come out. And we started a place called Rainbow House, which were those days it was a bungalow that we rented. And first of all, it was just half a dozen children we bought out of there. Totally naive, these children, you know, they needed all social skills. They had didn't know how to eat, eat properly or, or change themselves or anything like that. And we began to re-educate them and eventually enabled them to go to local schools and, uh, and, and get some sort of life to, to equip them for the future. And we had two aims there. One was if we could find their original families to try to get them reunited, because some had just been left by poor families, or try to get them adopted by Christian families somewhere in the world. And we did both of that. Um, many of those children were adopted to families all over the world today. And, and they're there today, grown up, many of them now. Mm. Wonderful. We did find some of the families. One particular uh, family we found is a young man called Uwen. He had cerebral palsy and he'd been put in this place. His parents were subsistence farmers, didn't have any money, thought we'd have terrible medical bills, so they just left him to the government, not knowing what they were leaving him to. Well, we traced the family, and we were able to reunite them. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that their son was still alive, let alone anything else. Hmm. And the fact, too, he now had social skills that he would never have had before. Um, in a process, not overnight, but over a process, we brought them together as a family so that he could eventually go back to live with his family. And I remember this to my, to my dying day. His father came to, to pick him up. And I said, look, I want to pray with you before you go. And he's a Buddhist. He said, that's fine. And I prayed with him as a family. And he said something quite remarkable. He said, I want to thank you and thank your God what you've done for my son. Oh, one of those tear-jerking moments that was. Today, that young man is a businessman in Thailand. Wonderful thing. And there's so many th stories like that of where we were able to rescue these children. And what we were able to do through our wonderful partners, Charia and Wasan, two wonderful Christian leaders, we were able to train them on so that they would take over this work. And now it's a great foundation in Thailand which is honoured by the government mm. for what they're doing amongst those who are on the fringe of society. And isn't it interesting? So there, you know, from, from a real need and seeing that, that need again, you know, God causing a great support work to be born, of course, which is still operating today. There was another need, of course, that you yeah. saw out there, and that fell into the AIDS and HIV yeah. camp, which, of course, had its issues here, never mind, you know, in Thailand. But what was the story with that? So much bigger there in Thailand, and it was under the, under the counter there very much. I mean, it's had to say that um, in a society where prostitution is a way of life, and 
I have to say that because you had fact. the lady boys and all of those well, it's not, sorts it's not, of things. It's not just that; it's a way of life with the men there. I mean, they, they, they think nothing of going out to the brothel and then going back to their wives. So, AIDS in those days was spreading like a relay. Pretty button. much rampant. Yeah. It was rampant. No one was recognising it or doing anything about it there, and the government were hiding, hiding this. It was a, it was not seen by the by, or they didn't want to see it. Put it that way. So. Our vision was to do something about those who were HIV-infected, suffering from AIDS. Number one, to give them some hope for the future. Help them in many ways. Many of them didn't know how to even get hold of medical treatment to help them. And medical treatment was pretty limited in those days anyway. To care for them, particularly some of these young girls who'd been infected and we knew they were going to die, they were worried about their children and we would try to make accommodation for them so that they, they would know that their children would be safe for the future, usually going back to their grandparents. And try to show them that even though they had AIDS, we could still live a normal life. We used to take them away on picnics. On, we took them down to the sea one day. Yeah. We, we took we got a bus and we took some of these patients. Well, we can't call them patients. They were friends. And we took them to the seaside in a bus. Do you know, one of them went to the sea and said... Salty. Never <laughs> seen the sea before. Never been anywhere before. But we took them away and we ate with them. We lived with them. We showed them that we cared for them. And do you know some of these folk became Christians? But that work's gone on as well. Have I got time to tell another story about how? No, absolutely. We have always one, time for a story. We have a. We had, I had a wonderful young lady working for us, a Christian girl called Ratchani. And she so cared for these folk who were suffering with HIV, and some of them were really in a very poor state. And there was a man who was near the end of his life, and he suffered a lot, and he was in bed. And she sat with him day and night. She held his hand in bed. She told him stories, and she told him stories about Jesus. And as he was coming near the end of his days, I remember... He said, I want my family to come and see me. And they knew he was dying. They went in to see him there, and he said, I want to tell you something. I've been a Buddhist all my life, but this young lady here, and he pointed to Rajni, she has shown me love that I've never experienced anywhere else in the world. I was born a Buddhist, but I'm dying as a Christian. Mm. It's amazing. And, and of course, you know, I suppose that, that right at the heart of the gospel, there's this care, compassion, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 and so on. And of course, it's very interesting, really, that there you were, you weren't in your face proselytizing. You know, no, 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 no. You, you, you were actually just sort of responding to the need that was there yeah. in the name of God. Yeah. Uh, and actually the Holy Spirit yeah. breaking down. It's so important that we demonstrate the love of Christ in practical ways. It has an effect that we don't always know or don't always see, but it does have an impact. This is Hope FM. Well, the next time that you pray... uh, 
The Lord's Prayer, you, you, you just remember that we have a God of intervention who knows exactly how to use his people and to direct them uh, all over the world in order to meet the, um, the immense needs of people, both in this country and indeed right across uh, the world. You've been hearing a story from Robin uh, today about, about how he's been used, we know, with his wife Shirley, uh, you know, in, particularly in Asia and in Thailand and so on. But, you know, people are called all over the world and making a huge dis, you know, difference. Uh, but right at the heart of it is God, a God who cares, a God who guides, and a God who uses just people like you and me in order to to respond to the need. Robin, I, I, there's so much that we need to get in and so very little time uh, to do it, but never mind, we shall push on. Um, now, I'm holding in my hand uh, a book that you have written uh, about revival, Touched by Heaven. Right at the beginning of today's interview, you, you talked about this being part of a series of lectures that you give yes. uh, you know, at, at, at Moreland's. Now, how would you best describe revival to somebody who had no idea what we were talking about? Yeah. Well, there are many definitions as to revival. In one sense, there can be many definitions because it can mean different things to di- in different situations to different people. But I define it in this way, and this is my definition of revival. And if I may quote here, this yeah, is how oh, I describe revival. It is a sovereign intervention by God upon his church at a particular point in history in a visible and powerful way that can only be described as out of the norm now that's my definition of, of revival if you want me to unpack it i would do but there's a lot in there now obviously in I, i've not read the book myself so I, I i'm looking forward to having a good read of it and i'll get you back and then i, I i'll be more informed you know to to talk to you about it uh, but of course it's as, as you say it is god's divine intervention of course people Many of us won't remember the Welsh Revival, no. which was probably the last great revival in the United Kingdom. No, 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 no. There's been revival since. That was probably the major one in, in Wales in 1904, 1905. In the 191921, there was an amazing revival in East Anglia based on Lowestoft, and that went up through the fishing community up into Scotland then. And then, of course, there were the, there were the movements in the, in the Hebrides, 1948. Oh, the Lewis. The yeah. Lewis revivals yeah. there. So there... But there's been no, uh, since then, there's been no uh, major moving, as I understand it, on the mainland here in the UK. It's very interesting, you know, because uh, it seemed to me that uh, that when you look at the state of our nation mm-hmm. at the moment in, in the United Kingdom, sure. that here, here we are, uh, you know, once a proud Christian nation. Uh, probably now, uh, you know, obviously our laws are still based on those Christian values and so on. But but our churches are, are let's be honest about it, they're emptying. Yeah. Um, uh, we've probably lost a generation sure. of young people. Would you say, in, and particularly in the research that you've done and so on, that there, there's never been a time when our nation is ripe for, for, for God's intervention? Um, you know, and some people would say, well... Or they'll talk about judgment and God's judgment on nations, and of course that is equally true. But I guess that that one of the great histories of, of revival is is God's mercy. Absolutely, yeah. What, what's your view about all of that? Well, there, there have been times like that when God has moved. Back in the 18th century, God moved. Then you see the st- the nature, state of the nation after um, King Charles, Charles II and you know the Merry Monarch as he was there, he threw everything back and. Uh, 
the church was in a terrible mess then. Uh, I mean, people, the, the, the bishops, they said, never attended churches. They were usually out hunting in, in the day. And the, the whole state of the nation was, uh, was, was, was going in a, in a downward spiral. But then God raised up two men, John Wesley, George Whitfield. Who had a pretty rough time, didn't they? And they had a very rough time. But God turned it around. And as many would say, historians would say this, the intervention of God through Wesley, Whitfield and others, there were others as well that God raised up at that time, it probably saved us from the horrors of something like the French Revolution. Well, if you, uh, I will get you back to talk about about this because there's still a, we want to mention just briefly about the juniper tree and and also about you know even with all that experience you still went through a time where you were sure. you were unemployed. But just to say that if you want to get hold of uh, Robin's book in advance of when I have him back on again to talk particularly about about. His research on revival, that book is called Touched by Heaven, When God Sends Revival is the subtitle. And uh, I'm pretty sure that if you if you probably go on Amazon and so on, have a look there, I don't know. Possibly, but yeah, but sure. certainly Keith Jones, Keith Jones uh, they'll probably be able to get it for I you. I've so. got plenty of them. So. so a good excuse for me to have you back, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Robin. Uh, but let, let's just talk briefly about uh, two things. I want to talk to you about Juniper Tree. But, but you did actually, I was actually talking to somebody yesterday um who uh, had sort of challenges and and um, you know in this case you went through having been very active and done all this uh, high level stuff you went to being unemployed yeah and it was a it was a protracted period sure, of sure. unemployment how did you survive that what was it that carried you through well, I would say it was a very difficult period. We came back from Thailand, and we've been so active in the things that I've mentioned there and other things that I've not even mentioned. And we say one day we were dealing with ministers of government in Thailand. The next week we were there signing on at the um, job centre. And it was, well, it was, to be honest with you, I was quite depressed. What's God brought us back here for at this time? And I, I know the feeling, the emptiness, and... Uh, where do I go from here? I was applying for jobs and I didn't know where to look. But I knew we, 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 we had to come back to, to, to the UK, we, largely because we'd handed over the works out there to those who were able to do it far better than us, the Thai people. Um, and I didn't know what, what God was doing with us then. And I argued with God. And I, I can remember the sheer desperation, you know, where's the money coming from? How do we live during this time? You know, the unemployment benefit was quite limited. And, and Shirley would say, I remember we used to go around the supermarkets and we would take things out of our basket rather than put them in because we knew we couldn't afford them then. Mm. And I think what God was saying to him, look, I want you to know what some people were going through, how they are living or not living as the case may be, so that you can identify with them and I think God gave me a compassion for those who are in that sort of situation. But all the while along, in spite of the fact that I was arguing with God and I wasn't a very nice person properly in many respects during that time, <laughs> um, we did feel that God still had something more for us. And he did. The job centre said to me, you will never work again. They were their words. You'll never work again at your age. 
How old were you then? I was uh, mid fifties, I think mid fifties. Mm. That's young. That's yeah, young. For someone to be saying yeah, you're never going to. There was a big job shortage then, and no, 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 you'll never work again. They said, but we, God did provide, and He opened up a new door for us, which I could go into. But just tell you that God did open up a door for us, and I can remember the delight on my face when I went into the job centre. And they were surprised that <laughs> this job had come come up, which was another way of us serving serving God in this country. Well, let's finish uh, for today. Um, I think I'll get one more piece of music in, yeah. and I think we, we can either go with Deborah or the Messiah. I think we'd, I'd rather go with Deborah Klassen, if I may. Yeah, no, we know, yeah. yeah, we can do that. Um, but um, so the... Uh, let's talk about your work with Juniper Tree. Sure, yeah. Tell us a wee bit about it. Oh, the Juniper Tree. That's been my heart and that's been my life for the last few years. Um, there was a missionary out in, in Thailand called Ruth Wilson. She was originally working in Vietnam. and She was American. She was a widow. And when she was put out of Vietnam, as all the missionaries were, she went to Thailand and she saw the need for missionaries to have a place where they could just rest where they could recharge themselves spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And she started uh, uh, she, a whole uh, work of faith, renting bungalows on the beach at a place called Hua Hin in Thailand, a lovely seaside place. And she started taking people in there, and that work grew and grew. And whilst we were out there, we used to use that facility and go there from time to time for a break. We got to know Ruth very well. We got to love her. She was also uh, uh, a great friend of John Davis, our friends. And when we came back to the UK, Ruth had had to leave the work out there because of, um, for health reasons. And it wasn't really being managed out there, this work she set up. She said to myself and to John Davis... I want you to look after this work. <laughs> we never realised what we were letting ourselves in for. So what we did, we started the Juniper Tree Charitable Foundation. And the idea was to support this work out in Thailand, put in good managers to manage that work out there so that missionaries from not just Thailand but all over Asia could go to this place for rest, renewal. It's called the Juniper Tree based on 1 Kings 19... Elijah needed a place to rest, so God gave him, in the new version it's a broom tree, but in the old version it's a juniper tree where he could rest. And, well, the story goes on from there because God started to challenge us about opening up new centres, but maybe that's another story, is it? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, it's been wonderful having you uh, uh, on the programme today. And, and and as we both knew, we weren't going to be able to do justice <laughs> to... But but the one thing that the, your your story thus far, because this is to be continued, uh, uh, but it, it, it sort of builds encouragement in many people who maybe think that, that you know, that is there a God? It's okay. I think we've touched on the fact that it's okay to have doubts and that, and also not to be sure, but actually God in his own way has a way of, of bringing us through uh, uh, everything. Uh, and, and I guess uh, that you're not, God's not through with you yet, Robin, because you're, you're I'm probably... Sure, I'm sure he's not through with us, but God deals with us as individuals. He won't take us into a situation that's not us because he knows us far better than we know ourselves. And whilst the way he dealt with us, 
was one way. <laughs> He's not going to deal with you or someone else in that <laughs> same way. But the, the important thing is keeping in touch with God, that relationship with Jesus. For more inspirational interviews, podcasts and Hope FM best bits, visit hopefm.com forward slash listen again.